This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, August 15th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, we'll look at a piece of energy-saving equipment now eligible for a slew of government-subsidized rebates. From acidification to tipping point, how sign language is adapting to climate change. That story and more on This Week in Water. Then, we'll hear about efforts to protect and conserve the country's grasslands. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines. Then it's How on Earth. This week, Beth Bennett sits down with author and Water Resource Administrator Robert Crefossi about his book, Western Water A to Z, The History, Nature, and Culture of a Vanishing Resource. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of the wit and wisdom of Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, Terry Reardon will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still coming up, but first it's time for headlines with KGNU's John Kellen. Authorities will soon begin what they're calling a proactive effort to reduce the potential for a surface fire in open space south of Boulder. The Colorado Division of Reclamation, Mining and Safety will start mitigation work on the Lewis Coal Mine fire located beneath private properties near Marshall and Cherryvale Roads. It's hoped that the state's mitigation effort will finally extinguish the fire. It's expected to be finished by next spring. The coal mine fire is near the ignition points of the Marshall Mesa wildfire, which burned at the end of 2021. Investigators concluded it didn't play a significant role in that fire, which became the most destructive in Colorado history. While the Lewis coal mine fire mitigation effort is being called proactive, state officials have noticed increased surface activity there recently and have been monitoring it closely. The city of Boulder is offering help to middle-income people looking to buy a home in the city. They've started a new middle-income down payment assistant pilot program that offers up to $200,000 in zero-interest loans to middle-income people or 30% of the home sale price, whichever is less. There are some restrictions, including that a home must be market rate and within city limits and that buyers must occupy it. To be eligible for the assistance, program participants must agree to cap the property's resale price. The goal of the program is to create more permanently affordable housing within city limits for middle-income people. The program was approved by voters in 2019. Police in Denver are giving new details in the fatal shooting of a man by an officer earlier this month. KGNU Steve Miller has the story. An unarmed Denver man who was shot and killed by a Denver police officer on August 5th had a magic marker in his pocket. The officer thought that the marker was a knife. According to a 911 call, Brandon Cole, 36, was likely intoxicated and had pushed his wife from her wheelchair. The Denver Gazette reports that when police first arrived on the scene, Cole was rummaging around in a car. Denver police released two body camera videos. One of the two videos showed that Cole yelled, Let's go, at least five times, and walked toward one officer who was in the street pointing a taser. Cole then changed direction and walked toward a second officer who asked him to stop. Officers could be heard calling him by his first name, trying to de-escalate the situation. Cole did not stop and was shot as he appeared to advance upon the officer. The officer who shot Cole was placed on modified paid leave while the investigation into the shooting continues. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. The Adams County Sheriff's Office is crediting a bulletproof vest with saving the life of one of their deputies. 
The deputy was shot in the midsection early Monday during a chase for a suspect that ended at West 74th Avenue and Federal Boulevard. The incident began with an attempted traffic stop by the deputy at East 88th Avenue and Colorado Boulevard, which the suspect ignored. Though wearing protective gear, the deputy was taken to a hospital as a precaution. He is expected to be okay. The suspect was taken into custody shortly after 1 a.m. Monday. Also in Adams County, more than 30 people have been indicted for allegedly operating a drug ring for 15 years. KGNU's Jacob Agatston has more. The Adams County District Attorney's Office announced Monday a cocaine trafficking ring was dismantled after an 18-month-long investigation by the North Metro Task Force and the Drug Enforcement Agency. The investigation, named Operation Full Circle, also led to the indictment of 31 people on an extensive list of charges including trafficking, money laundering, and racketeering. According to the DA's office, the ring was allegedly run by brothers Gustavo and Martin Menaflores and operated undetected for close to 15 years. Of the 31 men and women who were indicted, 18 have already been arrested. Authorities believe that some of the remaining 13 individuals might be in Mexico. For KGNU, I'm Jacob Agatston. The Aurora City Council has passed a resolution opposing a campaign to change the city's government to a so-called strong mayor system. The move came in a vote last night. The strong mayor campaign is a ballot initiative that, if passed by voters, would change the city's form of government into what is already in place in Denver and Colorado Springs. In advocating for the strong mayor system, Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman has described the city as rudderless and leaderless. The Regional Transportation District has decided to permanently end its Broncos Ride Special Bus Service. The service ran between Denver Area Park and Ride stations at Empower Field at Mile High, but has been suspended for the last three football seasons. RTD said the decision to permanently discontinue Broncos Ride aligns with federal regulations that prohibit agencies that receive federal funding from competing with private services. They added that RTD's regular bus and rail services have provided enough transportation on game days. Front Range Community College is receiving a $100,000 gift from the heavy metal rock band Metallica. KGNU's Zach Thompson explains. The college was chosen from a pool of applicants for the funding, which comes from Metallica's All Within My Hands Foundation. The band currently has invested $6 million in workforce education. Of this, their foundation currently supports 42 community colleges across the country. School officials say they'll use the Metallica funding to support students in all of the programs in their Center for Integrated Manufacturing in Longmont, which promotes career and technical education. They add that Metallica will help Front Range Community College students get high-paying jobs. Students enrolled in Metallica-supported programs will develop trade skills sought out by businesses. For KGNU, I'm Zach Thompson. The weather for today, expect clear and sunny skies and the return of high heat. Temperatures throughout the metro area will be near 90 degrees with light and variable winds, according to the National Weather Service. They call for a high in Denver of 93 degrees. In Boulder, look for a high of 89, 90 degrees in Fort Collins, and in Nederland, a high of 78. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen.
You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Shannon Young. Currently, the cost difference of installing a heat pump instead of a centrally ducted AC system is about $1,800 for an average Colorado home. With a much higher rate of efficiency at a fraction of the carbon footprint, federal, state, and local governments are offering a slew of different rebates to incentivize Coloradans to install heat pumps. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Teresa Pistacanini, engineering manager at the UC Davis Western Cooling Efficiency Center, to learn more. So, Teresa, I just wanted to start with some real basics about heat pumps. So baseline, what I think I understand is that heat pumps take heat that is already existing in the environment and they pump it inside or outside, depending on whether you want heating or cooling in your house. How does this process work and why is it more environmentally friendly or energy efficient than, you know, traditional oil and gas utilities? Okay, I'll tell you, I'll give you all the, I'll give you all the details. Okay, so heat naturally just moves from things that are warm to things that are cold. Heat just moves in that direction, right? Like we don't have to put in any energy, that just happens. So let's talk about heating. Basically, we have a coil outside and there's refrigerant in that coil moving through that coil and we're going to make it colder than outdoors using the heat pump so if it's 30 degrees fahrenheit outside maybe that coils 20 degrees fahrenheit so it's going to take in heat right and so now we're going to take that cold refrigerant and we're going to compress it with a compressor what that does is it makes the refrigerant um really hot and then we're going to pump that hot refrigerant through our coil that's inside And so our air inside is colder than that coil. So it's going to take the heat and put it inside. And then it goes back through the coil outside. So you just basically have this refrigerant running around in a loop and it's getting cold and it's getting hot. It's getting cold and it's getting hot and it's transferring that heat. And so that process is more than 100% efficient because you're not burning fuel. You're just putting in energy to move heat. And so in that process, you know, a heat pump can, you can move, say, two to four times the amount of, of heat that you put in energy wise. And so your efficiency can be like 200 to 400 percent, similar to an air conditioner. And your efficiency goes down when the temperature between inside and outside gets bigger because you have to do more work to move that heat. Okay, I think I understand that. So if it's really cold outside, you have to have a coil that's like really, really, really cold. Correct. Then you, you take that heat and you move it inside. Um, but you com- you compress your refrigerant, that makes it really hot, and then you throw that heat inside, and then you drop the pressure of the refrigerant to do it all over again. You basically raise the pressure and then drop the pressure of the refrigerant over and over and over, and that serves as this pumping cycle to move that heat. So what actually powers the heat pump? So like, how would your energy bill be affected? Yeah, so you're going to use electricity to run that compressor just like you would for air conditioning, right? Except now you're just running the air conditioner backwards, essentially, with a heat pump. Whether how that's going to compare to what you paid for gas heating, it's really going to vary about where you are in the country and sort of the difference in your electricity and gas pricing. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, like the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to reduce the first cost of heat pumps, right? So that hopefully that if we can lower the first cost increased operational costs are a little bit easier to handle. So in 2022, Colorado passed a first-of-its-kind law that requires 
gas utility companies like Excel Energy to cut climate warming emissions 22% below 2015 levels. And Excel has to do this by 2030. So with this new law, many environmental groups are saying, great, Excel, to cut your emissions, what you need to do is ditch your oil and gas-powered utilities and really start transitioning to heat pumps, which are electrified utilities. Excel, which many point out, generated $2 billion in profit from Colorado's oil and gas-powered utilities just last year, says, no, heat pumps won't work. And they weren't, won't work because they are not efficient in cold climates like Colorado. They point to a study that they conducted, which they have not released for peer review, but according to them says that heat pumps um, are not efficient in cold climates because they can't pull enough heat from the air. I'm curious, do you know about the study or about the validity of this finding? Um, so it's true that heat pumps are going to be more cost effective and easier to install in climates that are uh, more mild, right? Like Boulder, Colorado is going to be one of the toughest nuts to crack. Like there's no doubt about it. The, the farther north, north we go, like the more difficult it is. The details of how you do that sort of affects how much electricity you're going to need and whether or not you might need panel upgrades and whether or not you're going to have to upgrade like your entire electricity infrastructure to handle all these heat pumps. And so um, I think one of the most interesting things is that I think in the, in, you know, DOE, the Department of Energy is running a high efficiency heat pump challenge to manufacturers. Um, they call it the cold climate heat pump challenge. So I think with time, we're going to see more and more technologies that are more applicable to colder climates. But this is where the world is moving, right? And so I think the more, the faster we accept that, the better, right? And then we come up with solutions. So... Given concerns about the technology, which are disputed by experts, but given that and a potential for your monthly bill to actually increase if you install a heat pump, at least for this short term, who's the potential customer for heat pump? Who should be really considering getting a heat pump? The reason you want to install a heat pump um, is because you're concerned about climate change, you're concerned about global warming impacts. And you're also making a decision for 20 years. And it's not unreasonable, you know, given the way things are going, I think a very large percentage of the population is going to start to electrify their homes, is going to, in the next decade, shut off their natural gas service, right? And then you can imagine, like, what might happen to the cost of natural gas over time, because as more and more that maintaining the natural gas distribution infrastructure is expensive. And the cost of paying for that infrastructure is borne by the ratepayers who use natural gas. So the more and more people who start to exit the natural gas system, their remaining costs are going to be borne by the remaining customers. So natural gas may be cheaper today in a lot of places, but the question is like, will it be cheaper for the next 20 years? And I, I would lean no, right? So, you know, where the economics lie is it's, it's very difficult to predict. Well, is there anything else that you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Um, in terms of consumers thinking about buying a heat pump, most people don't go shopping for a new heating and cooling system until there's fails. And that's a really bad time to have to make um, a difficult, you know, a, a hard decision. And, 
particularly like if you're without heating or cooling and you just can't live that way for very long comfortably. And so doing this, if your system is, is 15 years old or 20 years old, doing this shopping like during spring and fall when it's mild outside, you'll get better pricing from contractors and you'll have more time to maybe like order something that'll work for your needs and do more planning. So I would encourage people to plan ahead here. Um, sort of similar to like when you're car shopping, right? Like the worst time to show up at a car dealer is like when your car just died, right? Like that's not when you negotiate a good deal. That sounds like sound advice. Teresa, thank you so much for talking with me. All right. Thanks. That was Teresa Pistacchini, the engineering manager at UC Davis Western Cooling Efficiency Center. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. Up next is This Week in Water with Jamie Sudler and Franny Halperin. Actually, contrails can be bad. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. Weather-related disasters were in the news last week, from flooding in Norway, China, and Croatia following heavy rains, to extreme heat in Spain and fires in Portugal. In Hawaii, the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in a century has claimed at least 93 lives on Maui as of Sunday. Losses could be as high as 8 to $10 billion. While it's not certain what started the fire, nearly one-fifth of Maui was in drought conditions. Hundreds of miles to the southwest, Hurricane Dora produced winds that fanned the flames. Dry vegetation, about a quarter of which is from non-native grasses, was easily ignited. Last winter, there was more rainfall than average, which could have led to the growth of grasses and other vegetation that became highly flammable as they lost moisture. After the wildfires are gone, communities in Maui, just like those in Boulder County, Colorado, and Paradise, California, will face environmental hazards. Andrew Welton of Purdue University wrote in the conversation that burned structures contain plastics, paint, and treated wood that release toxic gas and particles, many of which fall to the ground. When stirred up, hazardous chemicals like benzene, lead, and asbestos can contaminate air and also water, which remains polluted even if boiled. Meanwhile, in the Red Sea, a major disaster was avoided which could have damaged one of Earth's largest marine ecosystems. A decaying supertanker floating off the coast of Yemen had become a ticking time bomb for fears that it could have ruptured or exploded. However, the oil in the ship called the Safar was successfully drained last week. The ship was abandoned about eight years ago, loaded with one million barrels of oil, four times more than the Exxon Valdez carried when it spilled off the coast of Alaska in 1989. The UN led an effort to raise money to access and drain the ship, after which the oil was siphoned to another vessel beginning at the end of last month. If the oil had spilled, it would have closed ports in Yemen, worsening conditions for 17 million people suffering from the civil war, and it would have affected 200,000 jobs and fish stocks for up to 25 years. A spill would have also threatened corals and mangroves. The Red Sea's ecosystem includes one of the longest continuously living reefs in the world, which are remarkable for their ability to tolerate heat. 
As our planet changes, so also changes the vocabulary needed to describe it. Our lexicon includes words we might not have often uttered 10 years ago, phrases like greenhouse gases, carbon footprint, or anthropogenic. Now, try to imagine employing those words if you are a deaf student, teacher, or scientist using sign language. It could get quite cumbersome spelling out each character if a sign doesn't exist. Luckily, help has arrived for those who use British Sign Language, or BSL. Recently, it was updated with over 200 environmental science terms, which now have their own official signs. So instead of fingerspelling A-C-I-D-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N for acidification, a person would hold up their left index finger while the right-hand palm vertically moves behind it to the side. The glossary of new terms, which are arranged around ecosystems, biodiversity, the physical environment, and pollution, was created by the Scottish Sensory Centre together with the Royal Society and will make it possible for deaf people to fully engage and contribute to discussions about life on Earth. To see videos on how to sign, for example, Tipping Point, grab the link on our website at h2oradio.org. And finally, contrails, short for condensation trails, are the wispy white lines you see left behind planes as they travel across the sky. Contrails are not chemtrails. Governments spraying us with substances for mind control, as conspiracy theorists would have you believe. However, those folks are right that contrails can be bad. They can trap heat in the atmosphere and add to the climate crisis. Contrails form when water vapor in the air mixes with exhaust particles emitted from aircraft engines. Although the manufactured clouds can reflect sunlight back into space during the day, they also trap large amounts of heat that would otherwise leave Earth's atmosphere. Not every flight causes contrails. They occur only when planes fly through layers of humidity, so how to avoid those areas was a challenge taken up by a group of researchers at Google who teamed up with Bill Gates' climate investment fund Breakthrough Energy to combine satellite imagery with weather and flight path data and then used AI to develop contrail forecast maps. Next, they partnered with American Airlines, whose pilots flew 70 test flights over six months, using the maps to make small adjustments to routes, not dissimilar to how they might change course or altitude to avoid turbulence, and found that contrail formation was reduced by 54%. Although the adjusted routes burned 2% more fuel, the team calculated that because only a fraction of flights would need to be changed, using the maps could help reduce aviation's climate impact as sustainable fuels and other technology take flight. That's it for this week in water. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The 6th America's Grasslands Conference held in Cheyenne, Wyoming last week brought more than 300 diverse stakeholders together to protect the nation's grasslands, which play a critical role in rural economies and are home to thousands of species of birds, insects, and other wildlife. Eric Galatis has more. 
More than 300 ranchers, tribal members, conservationists, researchers, and federal and state agency officials gathered in Cheyenne last week to find ways to safeguard and restore the nation's grasslands. Aviva Glazier with the National Wildlife Federation says grasslands are critical for rural economies and wildlife. However, in just the past few decades, millions of acres have been severely degraded or lost altogether. Whether it's conversion to cropland or development, some studies have shown that the loss of grassland has actually been even faster than the loss of Amazon rainforest. Colorado has been a leader nationally on protecting wildlife migration corridors, and Glazier says safeguarding and restoring grasslands is key for wildlife connectivity. Grasslands are home to thousands of species of birds, insects, and other wildlife, and some species have become endangered or extinct due to loss of habitat. Participants in the 6th America's Grasslands Conference also worked to advance the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, legislation that would offer protection similar to those already in effect for the nation's wetlands. Glazier says it's also important to protect climate-smart agriculture funding in the Inflation Reduction Act, which could be at risk in the upcoming Farm Bill. $20 billion that should be going to farmers and ranchers, making sure that that funding gets protected and actually goes on the ground to those farmers and ranchers to help them implement those practices. The root systems of grasslands absorb greenhouse gases, creating vast carbon sinks that keep climate pollution out of the atmosphere. Glazier says one of the biggest challenges for conserving and restoring grasslands is helping the American public understand the value of this frequently overlooked resource. Most people think of grasslands as flyover country. They don't understand the value for wildlife, the value for rural communities, and for ranchers. For climate, grasslands hold so much carbon in the soil. This is Eric Galatis reporting for the Colorado News Connection. That's it for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Thanks to John Kellen, Jacob Agatston, Zach Thompson, Alexis Kenyon, Franny Halperin, Jamie Sudler, and Eric Galatis for their contributions to today's show. Stay tuned for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. That's coming up after the BBC News Headlines.